And um, moving on to our, our next guest is uh, Tom Robbins. He uh, ordinarily hosts the 6 p.m. show on Mondays on WBAI, Deadline uh, NYC. Uh, he is also, uh, for many decades, a uh, reporter for The Village Voice, really one of the great uh, journalists here in, in New York City. Was, he and Wayne Barrett were really the twin anchors of The Voice for so many years, so much uh, great work they did. And, uh, you know, Tom has probably forgotten more about about uh, New York politics than many of us will ever know. And uh, Tom, it's uh, so great to have you join us tonight on this uh, election day to, to share your uh, perspective. Well, you know, I, I want to caution the readers that, or the listeners that all that kind things that John says is, you know, it's very kind, but I, I, it's not quite on the money. I, I've forgotten so many things that, uh, you know, it surpasses what I ever knew. It's true. Um, <laughs> You know, it's funny. You talk about the work that Wayne Barrett and I did at The Voice. I missed The Voice in this election a great deal. You know, I just it's not so much The Voice itself because they're trying to come back. But like the way that we would try to go at these races, John, was was early on try to look at each one of the candidates and just try to see like what is there about them that we don't know and that we should know. And I'm so struck by the fact that a lot of the press was very late to that game. You know, it was only just over the weekend that we saw a, a fairly decent story about Eric Adams' role uh, in the NYPD in the New York Times. There had been an earlier one in the city, the online edition, but that's such a really important issue for people to understand. And I, that that was the kind of stuff that, that Barrett and myself and, and others at The Voice did back in the day. And, and so I, I sort of missed that kind of uh, aggressive sort of deep dig approach to this race because there was so much there that I thought people needed to know and, and didn't hear in a timely fashion. And, and speaking of the front runner, Eric Adams, uh, it, yeah. it, what do you think uh, people should know or, or maybe barely know about him? Uh, as we, well, I, you know, I think there's a lot of confusing information. I mean, he's an incredibly attractive candidate in many ways. You know, he, he's a vigorous, young, appearing 50-something man who's served 22 years in the police department. And he joined the police department, by his account, for, for the best of reasons. Reverend Herbert Daughtry encouraged him to go in to see the impact that he had. And yet, what role did he play? What What, what was he doing there? I mean, I think that there's, there's, we, we, we enter this last day of voting with a huge number of questions about him. Look, he was a Republican for four years. You know, for four years during the Rudy Giuliani administration here in New York, uh, Eric Adams thought of himself as a Republican, and he endorsed Giuliani's pretty draconian approach to policing at that time. And, and and that's something that I, I think, you know, at least bothers me in terms of trying to come to terms with like who he is today. Um, I think that he he projects a great vigor and, uh, and intelligence and concern for voters. But um, this last minute effort that he launched to try to condemn his two of his leading opponents for engaging in voter suppression, I I was completely thrown aback by that, that he would throw that term into the race. It was clearly an attempt to try to galvanize black voters with the, you know, the saying, you know, really a to the gut punch on that. But I, I just, it didn't seem to be based on anything real. It was just something he was throwing out there. So that, that certainly made me uneasy about the qualities that he might bring to city hall. If, if he's the victor here. And he, he's a, 
in many eyes seen as a, a machine politician. What um, what would it mean to have uh, someone who's so deeply tied to sort of all these institutional actors in the in the Democratic Party, in the labor unions, in, in the real estate industry? Um, to have somebody really that enmeshed, uh, I guess, what are the pros or cons? Of well, we're, we're kind of used to it. That's a good question, John. But you know what? The funny thing is, is that our current two-term progressive mayor was supported by that exact same machine that we're talking about now. You know, Frank Sedio, the former chairman of the Brooklyn Democratic Party, was a huge de Blasio supporter. In fact, he gave him mortgages on his homes right after he won the primary. You know, uh, these are the same people that we're looking at today who are getting a little concerned about supporting Eric Adams, uh, Frank Zedio, Frank Carone, the counsel for the Brooklyn Democratic Party. That's kind of what we perceive as the machine, as it were, although those guys haven't really won much many races in the recent past. But it could it could be a matter of true concern because, you know, uh, lobbyists and and those trying to pull their interests in City Hall are, are going to move heaven and earth. I mean, we can see that with the huge amounts of money being spent on the uh, PACs, the special political action committees that are allegedly separate from the candidates. They're now right now pouring millions of dollars into Eric Adams' campaign, as they are into others. But clearly, there's there's an agenda there, and we should be concerned about what that agenda is. And what do you make of the uh, NYPD, in a certain sense, sort of coming back in fashion uh, one year after the massive uh, George Floyd uh, protests and all the demands we heard this time last June for uh, cutting the police budget by a billion dollars or more and, and re-envisioning what policing uh, uh, should be here in the city. And now uh, we, we have law and order candidates like Adams and, and Andrew Yang and, and, and Catherine Garcia has also made it clear that she's not going to shake up the police department very much at all. What do you make of the way that sort of the NYPD is, at least in this sort of uh, public perception, it has uh, rebounded and in, in, um, being pro-police is, is now seems like a, a winning political position? Well, I, I mean, we'll see how winning it is. But I, I, I mean, I think with all those candidates you just mentioned, there are variations in in what they're calling for. I think, you know, Eric Adams has has clearly tried to articulate a policy in which he's talked about bringing back some of the tactics that were considered pretty odious and uh, prohibitive by people stopping frisk to some extent, uh, the anti-crime squads to get guns off the street. It's interesting, John, you, because we do sort of ricochet back and forth between two, these two extremes, don't we? You know, a year ago, we were literally trying to figure out some way to really south cut the budget of the NYPD in such a way so that they didn't play such an integral role in the everyday lives of people in, in working class communities. And now, uh, like the, 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 the voter you just talked to, I mean, her impression, at least the impression is that crime is rampant. Now, look, crime is a, is a huge consideration. I mean, look, when you've got kids getting shot in Times Square just for, you know, hanging out there, you know, for like between two brothers having a shootout, that's a bad thing. We've had, you know, an enormous increase in, in shootings and in, and in homicides. That's, that is a true concern. But have we forgotten everything? Does that really mean that we don't really know what, what some of the solutions are? Have we, do we get nowheres with our, the long debates that we have in the interim before we bounce back to the, like, let's put more cops on the street position? It's quite extraordinary to watch, I think. Right. We're going to have a, another guest later in the show um, 
who, who uh, uh, Julie Holler um, from uh, Fairness and Accuracy in, in Reporting from Fair, she published a piece um, uh, yesterday looking at how the, the tabloids have really, uh, you know, doubled and tripled down on the crime narrative uh, while saying very little about the crisis in affordable housing and the way that sort of public consciousness is, is shaped by these media narratives. Uh, when you think of all the people uh, who are struggling to keep a roof over their head and, and what they go through, yet crime gets uh, so much of the focus. What's your sense of the impact of uh, the tabloids and, and, and just sort of the media ecosystem in New York in 2021 compared to times past? It's such a faint shadow of what it was, John. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, both the Post and the news have 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 promoted crime stories in a way. Is that is that justified? If you're right there and you're on the scene and it happens on your block in your neighborhood, you you may well think that that's a major story and that deserves. And in terms of the kind of terrible crime that we lived through in, in past years, no, it doesn't it doesn't even come close. But I think the important thing to recognize is that both our tabloids, the New York Post and the Daily News, right? they they just they wish they had the clout that they want. I can't even afford to buy a copy of the Daily News anymore. You look at the on the on the, on the newsstands if you can find one, it's like three and a half bucks just to pick up a copy. Nobody does that. They look at it online if they look at it at all. But you know, speaking of the tabloids, <laughs> I think one of the most fascinating things today is the front page of the New York Post, which is a full page ad. For Eric Adams, this is Rupert Murdoch we're talking here, right? (laughs) Hasn't this sort of been a a Murdoch uh, MO for many years? I mean, I understand he went all in for Ed Koch in 1977. Yeah, but that was Ed Koch. He was a white Joe, John. We're talking about a black guy from Brownsville in Jamaica. And, and, and here's Rupert Murdoch saying, give, you know, vote to save New York. Yes. I mean, yeah, to the extent that Murdoch always tries to influence elections. Absolutely. Mario Cuomo used to have a great quote. He said, you know, like you might get the endorsement of the Times, you might get the endorsement of the Daily News, but when you get the endorsement of the New York Post, you get the front page and the whole damn paper. You know, (laughs) I mean, that's the way they operate over there. You know, it's not an honest situation, but that's a very telling front page to give away your front page on the day of the biggest voter turnout in the city to say, vote to save New York as though New York really needed saving. And this is the man to do it. It says pick and pick Eric Adams. That's what it says right on the face of it. I mean, that's an amazing thing to me. I could not have imagined that that would happen for a black candidate running a long, a while ago. That's, that's a change. Do I think it's a good thing? No, I don't. I think it's a scary thing. Right. And, and, and speaking of voter turnout, I mean, voter turnout in democratic primaries has been declining for, for many years now. And, and uh, we'll see how it goes today. But what's your sense for why that uh, turnout and participation has been declining? I mean, New York is now an overwhelmingly Democratic city, and it was a center of the resistance to Trump during his time in office. But the local politics, the interest has tapered over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, first, I mean, starting with today, like, I mean, I don't know, I, I, I heard Ben Max said, like, as a four o'clock, there were some 400,000 people at the polls. Let's assume that, like, between now and nine o'clock, there's another two or 300,000 that get there. You know, you might end up somewhere as around 700, 800,000 people. That, that wouldn't be out of line from what we had in the last couple mayoral primaries. But yeah, the fall off overall has been extraordinary. And now we're 
the extra weight on people of a June primary. We've never done this before. This is an this is a first. We've never sent people to the polls. They're not used to voting in the spring. They vote in the fall. That's you know, we go through a long summer campaign and then right after Labor Day we vote. We're not doing that now. This is a very different thing for New Yorkers. And then you've got ranked choice voting, which look, is it as easy as one through five? Yeah. But, you know, I can tell you that for these uh, tired old 72-year-old eyes, like just being able to find those bubbles, <laughs> all those columns, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Some people are going to have a little bit of a problem with it, even though, oh, how can you not have a problem with it? It's one through five. Well, I think that there's some people who are going to watch people today at my polling place. You know, it's like it's going to take a while. I think it's a good thing, but I think it's going to take some getting used to. And some candidates will probably suffer because of that. But your broader question as to why why that incredible turnout. You know, I think that New York has become so much focused on national politics. So much of what happens in New York is shaped by what's happened nationally. You know, uh, that we spend most of our political energy focused on who's in the White House, who's in the Senate, who's in Congress. And we, unless there are some really sharp issues that are dividing New York, riots, as we saw in the 93 election when the impact of the Crown Heights riots really was the sole reason that David Dinkins lost to Rudy Giuliani, 93, or at 89, when David Dinkins beat Ed Koch in the primary after uh, Yusuf Hawkins was killed, you know, black youth shot down in a white neighborhood. You know, these are these are the things that fuel outrage. And, and even then, the bump, you know, only brought us up to about 60 percent or something. So, you know, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. But uh, the other thing that we're going to have to sort of figure out, I think we need to take a look at campaign finance, how it's working. You know, I mean, we have I think that this election, this mayoral election, John, might have been a little simpler had some of the candidates who clearly I don't think are going to do very well been forced to drop out. But they won't drop out because of two things. One is because, well, right choice voting, they still have a chance, right? They might get voted as number two or something, so maybe they can come from behind. So why right. Everybody out? can be a winner. Exactly right. And the other thing is eight to one matching funds. You know, there's like there's very little incentive. So I, that sort of takes us out of the realm of a certain kind of political reality. Like, say, you had in the Democratic primary where, you know, the other candidates eventually, they had, oh, I didn't, you know, I got to pull out now. They, they weren't under that kind of pressure this time. And that's I'm not sure that's a great thing for a democracy. And so we have uh, what is it, a total of 14 on the ballot, 15, I forget, but eight real contenders. And that's still that's a lot. That's a lot to to think about for people. Right. It's true. It's a lot to focus on. Uh, um, Also, I mean, certainly for the left, uh, I think it's been despairing of this uh, mayoral race uh, for uh, the last month or two as some of its leading candidates have imploded. Uh, But, um, well, actually, I wanted to just backtrack, um, given your history in journalism, uh, with with Scott Stringer and, and his campaign that, uh, really was derailed by the sexual misconduct allegations by Gene Kim. Uh, yesterday, we learned uh, from the Columbia Journalism Review that, uh, you know, Kim's uh, attorney had reached out to the New York Times to try to interest them in her allegations against Stringer. And the Times had passed on the story because there there wasn't any corroborating um, evidence, which is sort of the, was their standard for, you know, running a, a, a Me Too story. And, and instead, the uh, attorney P- Patricia Pastor and Gene Kim just held a press conference in front of City Hall, and that 
you know, pretty much dynamited uh, Stringer's uh, uh, campaign. But in, in the aftermath of that, uh, when the New York Times was reporting on uh, the, the allegations against Stringer, they, they never mentioned that they had, uh, you know, seen these uh, allegations beforehand and had declined to follow up on them, again, for that lack of evidence. Your, your thought on just the journalistic, uh, I guess, ethics and practice here uh, with the Times, well, kind you know, of giving I, this uh, sequence of events that unfolded with them knowing that they weren't even interested in the story, then it becomes a big story, and then they, the, the way they I, covered it afterwards? I, I, I don't know that the sequence of events that is laid out in that Columbia Journalism Review are, 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 are accurate. As I don't know if there's a Times response in that story, John, or not. There, there is not. Yeah. See, I mean, look, if if it did happen, as as you just described, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You would include at the minimum a paragraph that would say uh, the Times was given an opportunity to uh, write about this issue, but declined because of not lack of corroboration. Yeah, that would have been something to say. Would that have had impact, though? That's another question. I mean, look. Uh, Kim thought that the Times would be the ticket to making this a big story, you know, and would be able to sort of get the her story out for whatever reason she wanted. Instead, she had a news. She couldn't have asked for a bigger impact than she got, could she? I mean, as you said, she upended his campaign right there and then, you know, and Absolutely. it took people weeks. What the first piece I think was in the Intercept, which went back and did the the basic minimum that you would expect a reporter to do to talk to people who knew them both at the time this was allegedly occurring, and the Intercept came up with a very different description of events. And then you know when the lawyer and her and her client declined to start answer questions, you know, look I. <laughs> so what does it say about the state of uh, journalism at the oh, moment? Oh, we're lousy. Oh, forget it. <laughs> what can I tell you? Look, I mean, this this stuff is not new. You know, I don't I, I don't think that this is a big slide downhill. You know, usually we don't see them in the glaring light of day this way. But you know, there are there are felonies committed by the mainstream media. You know, we know this. You know, where they try to you know go one way and then do a three sixty and claim, oh, I never heard that before. Like, this happens all the time. But but I, I think that this is sort of a teachable moment in a way, and maybe we can come back and look at it again because I I hold no card for for Scott Stringer. I wrote lots of stories about him back in the day when when I thought that he and his clubhouse were sort of feasting on political patronage on the West Side from the judges that they put in office. I right. I, I, I appreciated his his turn to the left and to become Mister Progressive, but I'm not sure I completely bought it. But anyway, that's that's by way of saying I do think that he was somewhat of a victim here but you know he's such a he's such a schlepper he couldn't come up with a way to respond i mean i listened to him on brian lehrer and he he couldn't even really remember the exact dates of what his relationship with this woman were he's a victim i think to some extent of his own just messy life and thinking so i don't i don't feel a lot of i don't feel any pity for him you know but could the media have done a better job you betcha you betcha sure Mm. they could and should have and uh, given that the, the mayoral race has sort of gone off the rails for the left, I mean, people are, I guess, sort of hoping that uh, Maya Wiley might have a, a strong showing and breakthrough, but that's probably not likely. But there's a lot of down ballot races, uh, Comptroller with Brad Lander and, and dozens of city council races, including a half dozen races where the Democratic Socialist candidates have mounted really strong campaigns. Can you give us a sense? I mean, if progressives win at Comptroller and and get a, a strong block of people into the city council, how much of, of an impact could that have in a system where the mayor really still has tremendous power? 
Well, I guess if they had a supermajority in the council, they could overcome a mayoral veto. That's the that's the key thing. But I, you know, I would just say this caution, and I say this mindful of the fact that I'm talking on WBAI to many committed progressive voters. We, I think, you know, we need to think about this term a little bit. We we are finishing eight years of a quote unquote progressive capital P mayor. That's what Bill de Blasio ran as. That is his first and formal and most beloved description of himself. And yet, I think you'd be hard-pressed to really find people beyond a couple of accomplishments who think that that's the model of politics that they want to follow. So, you know, we we have people, if we're going to define them as progressive, I think they're sort of all over the map. You know, I mean, I'd love to feel great about Maya Wiley. I understand that she's a progressive as that. But I have a lot of questions about her resume that just don't make sense to me. You know, I just I don't understand. I never read one story about her longest professional association with a nonprofit that was devoted to promoting diversity. It may have done a magnificent job, but I would have loved to have heard about what it did and was she a good boss. I I still never heard what I thought was an honest response to the question of why and where and how do they come up with this agents of the city characterization to try to avoid providing transparency to reporters trying to get emails from de Blasio's cronies. I mean, I, there's tape of my Wally at a mayoral press conference explaining what agents of the city are. It's a complete fiction. Somebody made it up. I'd love to know, was it her? What did she think of it? She's never really answered the question. CCRB, I, you know, the Times had a pretty good story, I think very late in the game about what her role was there. But a lot of people seem to have had a lot of criticism that she didn't make use of it enough. So, yeah, she's got the progressive mantle. But, you know, I think you've got to ask, well, what, what is she able what did she do? What, how, how capable is she? That's a key question. Honesty is important, I think, no matter what you call yourself. Right. And, and why do you think, uh, I mean, de Blasio, his administration unfolded the way it did? I mean, it kind of started with a burst of activity around the, the pre-K, which uh, is widely seen as a success. And. Um, he fell yeah, in yeah, love he, with he, himself. What was that? He fell in love with himself. <laughs> he started running for president almost immediately. He really was more interested in Bill de Blasio after he accomplished a very great accomplishment for New Yorkers. I think, you know, pre-K will succeed him. We've got that. And I agree. Uh, the $15 an hour, the increase in the minimum wage, that'll succeed. And that's a great accomplishment. But he then took his show on the road immediately and tried to edge his way into the 2016 campaign, declared himself as a candidate for 2020. I did a story for the New Yorker last summer, which I talked to people who were in his administration, and they were talking about how much time they wasted talking about his campaign and, and who was going to come to his forums and whatnot. He, he simply fell in love with himself. Every morning he looked in the mirror and he saw the next president of the United States. So he stopped thinking about New York. And that's, look, that's an occupational hazard. You're the mayor of the biggest city in America, and you're the America's mayor, as they like to call themselves. But that's a fatal flaw. That is really a LaGuardia never thought of himself as a presidential candidate, I don't believe. You've got you've to love New York enough to say, look, I'm going to stick with it and do the job. He did not. Right. I, I mean, uh, our last few mayors have all sort of had this uh, presidential uh, delusion. Well, Rudy caught it after he left. Bloomberg got it while he was there. Bloomberg was seriously interested in it. But, you know, he was Mike Bloomberg and he was a billionaire. So he never had to say he's sorry. (laughs) He never had to apologize for anything. Certainly not. Uh, Well, we'll we'll have to leave it there. But uh, 
Tom Robbins, uh, thank you so much for joining us this evening on uh, WBAI on the, our uh, election special edition. It's really great to chat with you about everything uh, we were able to get to. John, thanks for letting me blather on. I appreciate it very much. Take care.